amen. It is, it is really so good to be with you and to worship our risen Christ together. And in light of this past week as well, but in light of the past year, you think about how much we've all been through together and to never take these mornings for granted when we can gather and we can worship the risen Christ. And so it's just so good to be with my other Risen Church family up here in the Woodlands, and it's, it's a joy to be part of the Risen Collective and to see leadership and gifts shared across our church bodies, and so I just count it such a great privilege to be with you and to open uh, the book of Galatians. So I invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians, and as you've been learning through this, through this great book, what is this book about? Well, as you've seen already from Pastor Sean, this is Paul going nuclear, if you've seen the movie Inside Out, the little red guy who explodes all the time and fire, he turns into a little portable Weber grill often in that movie. This is Paul's Weber grill moment. He has erupted in chapter one, and he will continue to erupt even further in this book. He is literally almost ripping his hair out, as you've heard in chapter one, that he can't believe that the Galatians are already abandoning the gospel, the real gospel for some kind of Frankenstein gospel. Paul's writing to, really, we could say, a family of churches in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. He is writing to a collective of churches that are having an intense doctrinal struggle. There are a group of teachers that have invaded these churches and telling them that you have to be circumcised to really be a Christian. You've got to keep the Jewish law. You've got to have the Jewish diet. You've got to dress a certain way. All these kinds of Jewishy things you must do if you really want to be a Christian. And he's telling this to a group of non-Jews, a group of Gentiles, that really simply, if you aren't going to act Jewish, you can't really be saved. Yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need this and this and this. And this turns Paul into a volcano. This is the most fiery letter he writes. Because on, on one level, the false teachers, they're not just attacking the gospel. They're also attacking Paul, saying Paul is leaving some of this stuff out, either on purpose or on accident, because Paul doesn't have clarity about the gospel. But as you've seen, Paul says, oh, I have clarity. I was made blind by Jesus. I see so clear now. And now I see the real gospel. And what we saw in chapter one is Paul gives a really autobiographical journey of his understanding of the gospel. That's why testimonies are always powerful. That's why your testimony is powerful. Paul gives his testimony as an argument for the validity of the gospel. And your testimony, whether you were saved from drugs and rock and roll at six years old, or whether you were saved from drugs and rock and roll at 50 years old, our testimonies are validity and power and credibility to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul front loads his argument with his journey. And now he picks up his autobiographical journey in chapter two, when church really is a fight, when church is a war. Sometimes churches, we fight about all kinds of really petty things. And we don't, we don't have time for that. There are too many real things going on. And sometimes Christians, we want to debate and wrangle about minor matters, but there are really some fights that we need to have. In my ministry life, there are fights that I've had to engage in. 
There, there will be fights and arguments and debates at Risen North and Risen Northwest and the, and the Risen to come that we will have to engage. Some fights and stances we have to take till the end because the visibility of the gospel is on the line. And I'll fight those fights all day long. And so did Paul. And so should you. So let's read about it, beginning in verse 1. And the Holy Spirit tells us through our brother Paul, 2-1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, help us now by the Holy Spirit to hear and to understand and to see your word and, and that we would see the significance of these ancient words to us right now in the 21st century on the other side of the planet from where they were pinned. Make them real to us in our lives now here in the greater Houston area. And we can only do this by by your work in us. So, so help us now, King Jesus, and it's in your name, and in your name that we pray, amen. Well, do you, I wonder if you have a favorite verse. that I, I do. When you hear it, you just get amped, you get encouraged, uh, you feel blessed. Mine's Galatians 2.20, here in this passage in chapter two. Maybe yours is Psalm 23, the whole section. Maybe it's Romans 8.1. And so listen, if you're looking for a life verse, maybe you don't, you don't have one yet, something you want to put on a pillow or some reclaimed wood on your living room, Galatians 2.3 is a good one. Look at Galatians 2.3 in your Bible. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. I mean, look at, look at what it would look. It would be beautiful in your room. <laughs> right there in your living room, it'd be a statement piece for your house. Here's why this verse is really so vital. This is why this verse ministers to me and is really a kind of a key to, to this whole passage. Because, beloved, this is what Paul's saying. 
If Peter, James, and John, those are the pillars he keeps mentioning, if they would have told Titus, you have to be circumcised, the gospel would have been corrupted already in the first century. This verse, Paul is saying, when I brought a Gentile to the pillars of the Jewish church, a man that walked and talked with our Jewish Savior, they did not compel Titus to be circumcised. And that is the entire argument of the false teachers. He destroys their argument with this verse, saying, if Peter, James, and John didn't compel Titus, how dare you? If we, if we are going to be the kind of churches and the kind of people that will make the real gospel recognizable in Houston and beyond, we are going to have to know our story we're going to have to know our theology, and we're going to have to know our stuff, and we're going to have to be brave. And we're going to have to be courageous, and we're going to have to be bold, because this is our sacred stewardship. Because there will be people in your life, friends, family members, fellow Christians, even good church-going folk, and you're going to have to be ready. Because we are now all engaged in a spiritual street fight. Because there is demonic powers that want to wage war against Risen North and Risen Northwest and Risen Langham Creek that are swirling now, even in the air around us, that want to corrupt the gospel message that we hear week in and week out. That's a threat. But I think the greatest threat in a local church isn't what's in the world, but really is what is in the church. Francis Schaeffer said, the greatest danger to the church is almost always found within the church. Because as we see, sometimes there are people that secretly slip in, verse four, and want to enslave us and, and see our freedom. And now in, in the greater Houston area, I've been here my whole life, and I know, and you probably know this very well too, there is so much legalism and hypocrisy and sham Christianity that we're gonna have to be ready to stand firm against it with just, with just the simple gospel. Because we all sit, and you, you sit here this morning, behind enemy lines. I know for many years, I used to think that the Woodlands and Magnolia and Tomball, that this was a safe haven for Christianity. This is where Christianity is going to thrive. Wrong. The Woodlands and Magnolia and Tomball and Cyprus, they are not safe havens for Christianity. They are safe havens for kind of Christianity. For Christian-ish but when the real gospel goes forward, that's where we find tension. Legalism abounds in our area. Grace is often bubble wrapped. And I have met many people who are addicted to legalism pills. And we gotta help everyone kick the habit. And here's how Paul wants to do this. Paul goes toe to toe with the Galatian false teachers and tells us about a time when a fight broke out here in the church. And here's his first point to us. Point number one, do not yield. Do not yield. Look at verse one. So then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation set before them, and set before them, though privately, before those seemed influential, which we know by the end is Peter, James, and John. 
He says, I may know to them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So now Paul's reminding us about how he goes up to Jerusalem to see these apostolic church leaders. He brings Barnabas, who we meet in the book of Acts, son of encouragement, a great man. He's a Jewish man. And Titus, a Gentile man. Barnabas has already been circumcised. He's already walked through the Jewish laws and customs. Titus has not. So you got to remember that. Paul's being very crafty here. And he has this private meeting with these leaders. He's telling us, telling us about a closed-door backstage meeting and how this discussion went. And look at what he says. He says in verse 2, I went up to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What does that mean? As Paul worried, it almost sounds like he's saying, I wanted to make sure that I'm preaching the real gospel. I don't think that's what he means at all. He is saying, I want to make sure these guys are teaching the real gospel. Because as we saw in chapter one, Paul knows, I know I'm preaching the real stuff. I didn't hear it from man. I didn't learn it from anybody in Jerusalem. I learned it from the risen Christ myself. And so he's saying, if Peter, James, and John and the Jerusalem church are already corrupted, then all of my missionary journeys, all those maps we have in the back here, Paul's saying, well, then I've literally been running around the Mediterranean world in vain because these churches are going to all fall apart. If HQ is corrupted, then we're all in trouble. But Paul gives us that mic drop in verse 3. No, it hasn't been corrupted because Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. All these false teachers are saying, you got to fulfill the old law. you got to do all this stuff. you got to do it all. It's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus this. Paul says, okay, let me tell you a story. I brought my friend Titus, who, who has faith in Jesus. He met Peter. He met James. He met John. And they didn't push him. Pillars of the church did not tell Titus, Titus, you, I, I'm glad that you love Jesus, but you got to do this too. Titus, I'm glad that you believe Jesus was crucified for you. I'm glad that you believe Jesus rose again from the dead for you. And I'm glad that you believe he's ascended to the Father's right hand. But Titus, you got to have this one thing. You know what Paul's doing here? He's saying to these false teachers and to the Galatian churches, do you even Bible, bro? <laughs> Beloved, this is so important. Because it shows us that nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be added to Jesus for you to be accepted before God. As Dane Ortland says so well, to try and help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. To try and help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. If we try to smuggle in our good works and our accomplishments into the gospel, we lose the gospel. We, we dilute it. And what the false teachers are saying is you need obedience to the law to really be saved. And in a sense, they're right. And this is always the danger with false teaching. False teaching, there's two kinds of false teaching. There's the ones that's really easy to spot. If I got up here and said, I believe Jesus is the evolution of a monkey, you would go, okay, that's easy. Uh, wrong. Metters is way off. Get him out of here. Sean, tackle him. That'd be easy. But if I got up here and said stuff that was like kind of close, that's harder to spot. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, said, 
Discernment is not telling the difference between salt and pepper. It's telling the difference between salt and sugar. And here what Paul's, yeah, the false teachers think you've got to obey the law. Well, in a sense, they're, they're right. But it's not our obedience to the law that we need. It's Christ's obedience to the law for us. It's Jesus fulfilling every, every command, the 600 plus commands in the Old Testament and all the dietary, all of the customs, Jesus fulfilling them for us and then now that being downloaded and transferred into our accounts. That Jesus obeyed every requirement, every demand, sinless for you and me. And that when you have faith in Christ, whether you are a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you are a half Mexican, whether you are whatever you are, when you believe in Christ's death and resurrection, his entire life and account is now added to you and you aren't lacking anything. If you are a Christian, you are not lacking one thing before the Father in heaven. And so we really gotta grasp this. That every Christian in this room has the same amount of Jesus, the same record, the same righteousness in their lives. Martin Luther does not have more righteousness than you. John Piper does not have more Christ than you. Matt Chandler does not have a more elevated status before the Father than anyone in this room. Every Christian, one who you've been, maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years, you know those people. Great saints. Maybe they've read the Bible 40 times the whole way through. That they can't even help it when they talk. These verses just spill out of them. You tell them, man, really nice weather today. And they say, yes, exactly. And whether I'm at home or away, I just want to please the Lord. But that's not the same. Okay, okay, yeah, praise God. And then there's that Christian who is newer to the faith. And they're struggling. They can't find their Bible. And if they did find it, they wouldn't know where to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And they barely, maybe they barely even made it to church today. But they believe Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead. They believe that Jesus is not a pile of bone dust somewhere in Jerusalem. Those two Christians have the same amount of righteousness, forgiveness, love, and acceptance before God. I know you may remember flying in an airplane. Remember this ancient practice we used to do? <laughs> in the kingdom of God, there are not business class Christians and last row by the toilet Christians. We're all the same in Christ. All you need is Jesus. This is the gift. That this is what a good God gives to us weary and bumbling sinners but there are going to be people that try to tell you otherwise. This is what Paul says in verse 4. Look, yet, even though verse 3 happened, yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy, who slithered in like a snake, to spy on our freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. Paul's language here is incredible. This whole fight broke out in the first place because false brothers have, have snuck in, who wormed their way in. This is very militaristic language. They spied on our freedom. People acting like they're on our side, like their family, enjoying the blessings and freedom in Christ, enjoying freedom from sin, and, and enjoying freedom from all these Jewish customs. 
being freed from the law. They spied on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What is the freedom that you and I have in Christ Jesus? Well, the first one is we're freed from the law. This, now, this doesn't mean, this is where it gets really tricky. And, and I understand why legalists can get nervous when you hear the word freedom. It doesn't mean freedom from obedience. That has to be clear, flat out. We are not freed from obeying Jesus and being disciples of Christ and walking with Christ and repenting of sin. That's a different battle than the battle of Galatians. James is that battle. James fights that fight. What Paul's fighting here is legalism and license, I think, as well. Because if we go one way, oh, I have so much freedom, we can't go, we are not free to sin. And this is the battle of license and legalism, you can see on the screen. License says, don't do this. License says, don't do this, it doesn't matter when it really does. So license says, don't, you don't have to do this, it doesn't matter, but it actually does. Legalism says, you have to do this, it matters, when it actually doesn't. These are the two ditches we can find ourselves in in the Christian life. But right now, our obedience to God, right there in in the true middle, our obedience to God is now our living with Christ, our walking with him, our living from him, living towards him, living with him, obeying the word of God as we follow him. When Paul says that we have freedom in Christ, it means we are freed from trying to meet the law to be accepted by God. We are freed from our records, our obedience, trying to earn a spot with the Father in heaven. But Paul says in verse 4, they want to bring us into slavery. These false teachers, these double agents, these chains. What does it bring us into slavery? Chains and, and burdens and weights on our lives. This is another version of legalism that I think happens in, in our community that I've seen for years. Legalism can happen to you in two different ways. It's Jesus plus something is how you're saved. But I don't think that's our great danger. I think it's the second one. Jesus plus something is how you're more righteous. How you're going to be a real Christian. How you're really going to level up and mature. I've seen people believe that Jesus plus baptism, that's how you're really going to level up in God's sight. Or maybe you grew up hearing Jesus plus speaking in tongues. That's something that's really going to make you a true Christian. Jesus plus circumcision, as we're hearing in the book of Galatians. Or maybe we think it's Jesus, some, Jesus plus some kind of emotional experience. Jesus plus, I need a really emotive mo- moment of worship to be sure of my place with God. Or Jesus plus foreign mission trip. Jesus plus reading through the Bible, the whole Bible, Genesis, Revelation in one year. Jesus plus some kind of thing that we do that will then now really give us peace and security and satisfaction. But I want to encourage us to remember what we sing often throughout the year. We do not sing, Jesus paid some of it, now it's our turn. But that, no, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. We are saved by faith. We know that. And Paul wants us to remember, now we live by faith. That's Galatians 2.20. We live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved us and gave himself for us. This second one really is our real danger. Jesus plus something else is how we're going to mature. It's like when I watch my kids play Fortnite. I don't even know if Fortnite's cool anymore. It's so dated already. All the kids are like, oh, brother. Or when I see him play Roblox, there we go. And they're, they're just trying to level up their character and get them faster and get them stronger. And it unlocks other experiences and other weapons and other skins and other kinds of doodads. I don't even know what's happening in these games. That's how a lot of us think the Christian life unfolds too. We gotta, we gotta get more XP points. More XP points. And that's, that's what's really gonna unlock a new experience. That's what's really gonna give me blessings from God if I keep leveling up. That's works-based faith. When the Apostle Peter tells us we have everything we need for life and godliness, it's already yours. You have everything you need in Christ, fully accepted. But maybe what you've heard from people growing up, maybe in college, maybe something you've read even this year, that if you don't fit this mold or, or do this thing, then your Christianity isn't measuring up. That if you don't homeschool, then you're really not gonna be doing the best thing for your Christian life. That if you aren't a stay-at-home mom, then you're somehow falling short in Christ. That if you don't do Christian school or if you don't do family worship every night or if you don't have Reformed theology, if you don't read John Piper, you know, I've never read Desiring God. I know, it's insane. I, can we edit that part out of the live stream and the video? I read the Cliff Notes version. If you're not a theology nerd, that you somehow feel like, I don't measure up because I'm not like this person or I'm not like that person. No. Some of those are good things. And you may do those things, but they do not score you points with God. They do not level you up in the kingdom of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you in his kingdom. We've got to eject and delete the old law legalism and the new law legalism because our community, this community, needs to hear the pure, undiluted gospel. The unbelievers that you encounter at your job, in your families, in your neighborhoods, the oftentimes they're rejecting false Christianity. And praise God. I want us to give the opportunity to unbelievers to reject real Christianity. We want to give them the opportunity to hear the real thing. I don't even think we're giving people the opportunity to even roll their eyes at the real gospel. We're content with letting them reject the false gospel. No, no, let's give them the real gospel, the full strength, undiluted gospel of grace. And we cannot yield to any false gospel for a moment. That's verse five. To them, we did not yield in submission for a moment. You gotta grit your teeth. You gotta dig your heels in with the real gospel. You can't be the kind of posture here that would say something like, well, you know, there's, there's a couple ways to look at it. Everyone has their opinion. No, not when it comes to the gospel. We cannot put commas where God puts periods. And we cannot put question marks where the Holy Spirit puts exclamation marks. It is finished. This is the gospel. Nothing more. And I love that Paul says why he did this. 
We did this, the end of verse five, we did this so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Preserved for you. We don't need a gospel fusion. You ever been to a fusion restaurant? Sometimes they work. I've been to a Mexican-French fusion. It was pretty good. Thai-Indian? Okay, okay. But it's like Canadian-Mexican? No. Canadian, just stay north. Nothing. The gospel doesn't need any fusion. It doesn't work. It's awesome on its own. It, It is filling. It is satisfactory. It is renewing. It is saving and sustaining power all on its own. We cannot fuse it with old law legalism, with new law legalism. If we do, it's no longer the gospel. And you're going to hear these teachings from your friends, maybe from your parents. They're going to try and even force them aggressively on you. I've sat in these meetings. I've sat with these people, and you cannot submit to them even for a moment. So let me just ask us this morning. Where do you find your acceptance before God? I know that if you've been here for a while and you've been coming to church for a while, you might think, oh, it's Christ. Uh, Hallelujah. Now, where do you base your joy in life? Is it Christ? I do want us to see that joy is circumstantial. Is Christ alive or not? Is Christ alive in the heavenly places for me or not? If so, then joy is there at the ready. How do you believe you're saved? What do you think you have to do apart from having faith in Jesus or you aren't accepted by God? Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend that was struggling with depression and discouragement and anxiety. And this is what Luther wrote to his friend. And it ministered to me, and I hope it'll minister to you. Here's what Martin Luther said. Friend, have you finally become sick and tired of your own righteousness and taken a deep breath of the righteousness of Christ and learned to trust in it? I just ask us all of that this morning. This is, I think, the, really the, what it means to really walk in the Christian life, to experience forgiveness, to experience the joy of Christ. Have you finally become sick and tired of acting like you have it all together? Have you finally become sick and tired of trying to impress others? Have you finally grown sick and tired of playing the Bible Belt Christian-ish game and learned to breathe deeply to see that oxygen meter on your finger at 100% of the righteousness of Christ. That Christ is what defines your life, nothing else. That you don't have to submit to any other definition of righteousness before God. It's Christ alone. It's just him, not schooling choices, not whether you drink alcohol or not, not how you vote, none of these things, just Christ And I hope that as Paul's walking us through the book of Galatians, that you'll become so familiar with the grammar of the gospel and so familiar with the cadence of the gospel that you can sense when something's offbeat. I'm sure it's never happened here, but I've been in a church service before where the worship band's playing and it's like, oh, wrong key. Someone's in the wrong key. Who is it? And everybody kind of looks at that one guy like, I'm not meaning to look in any direction. I'm not accusing anyone. 
that we would be so familiar with the gospel, so familiar with the rhyme and rhythm and keys of it that we could hear, that's off. That's, that, that's, that's a different kind of gospel. That's not the truth of the gospel, verse five, that we want to preserve for you. And I love that Paul says this for you. So connect these two things. This meeting happens a long time ago in Jerusalem. And now Paul's writing to this collective of churches in Galatia and says, we sought to preserve the gospel for you, church of Galatia. And now we could take this and go, 2,000 years later, Paul says, I did this to preserve the gospel for you, risen north. And now we've got to think about it in such a way as for the little kids that run around these halls that are in these rooms, that we would seek to preserve the gospel for them. And see the churches that are planted out of the Risen Collective, see the gospel preserved for them. Because I can tell you that church cultures, they deny the gospel long before the preaching does. The way a church lives and, and loves one another, the church itself can betray the gospel of grace long before the pulpit does or the counseling room. Hey, listen, a, a church can have a pristine doctrinal statement on its website but it can betray the gospel in the way it treats one another. Do you see that? This is what's happening here. The vibe and ecosystem of the church, the way of life, it really matters. It's like having a shelf full of cookbooks, a subscription to Freshly, and then having a, a Facebook group that you're a part of for cooking tips and other chef friends you meet up once a month and you talk about recipes, but yet all you actually do is DoorDash food. All you do is heat up a screaming Sicilian pizza, which is the best frozen pizza brand. What good is all the cookbooks? What good is the delivery service? What good is the community of chef-minded people if it's never lived out? See, sometimes a lot of us have a Christian life where we got shelves of books, we have, we have sermons and podcasts and things delivered to us, we have a community that we all say we're in this together, but we don't draw upon it and live it. Because as Ray Ortland tells us, gospel doctrine is meant to create a gospel culture. Both together, lived out. If we preach grace, then we're gracious to one another. That if we say and we believe in a God who is slow to anger, and, and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, but then we turn around and we are people that are quick to anger, abounding in bitterness and unmerciful. Then we betray the gospel that we say we claim to believe. We must be the kinds of churches that make the real gospel known, preserving it for them. And maybe you're new to Risen this morning. Maybe you're watching on the live stream and, and you're new and you're, you're tuning in. Maybe you've been burned by religion and churchiosity. I, I, don't, I don't doubt that for a minute that that's happened to you. But here's what I would say in response. You were not burned by Jesus. Jesus can actually heal you. Jesus can save you. The real Christ does not invite you to jump through any hoops or achieve anything to come to him. He simply says, come to me if you are tired and worn out, and I will give you rest. 
You simply bring yourself to Jesus. He is ready to save every weary and worn out sinner in this room and online. And he can do that for you. The truth of the gospel has been preserved for you. Every generation will have to fight to preserve the gospel. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways we do this here at Risen North and we do this at Risen Northwest is a final point this morning is that we will fellowship around pure grace. We'll fellowship around pure grace. This is verses six through 10. No additives to our fellowship. Look at verse six. Paul says, and from those who seem to be influential, which you know are Peter, James, and John, they added nothing to me. The end of verse six. They didn't tell him, hey, that's great stuff, Paul. You're forgetting one thing. So our church fellowship doesn't get built off of adding subtracting, no, no additives. In fact, they, they only told Paul, hey, take care of the poor too. That's the only thing they really brought up to him. And he says, hey, I was eager to do that. No, no, no problem. So they didn't add anything. Paul is just still pounding on the argument of the false teachers. But instead of adding, look at verse seven. Well, look at what they do. On the contrary, instead of adding, when they saw I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter went to the others, They what? Perceived the grace there in verse nine and they extended the right hand of fellowship. Verse nine. They extended, they gave the right hand of fellowship. Basketball players have these elaborate handshakes and celebrations. A lot of athletes do. Have you ever seen them? My son and I developed one. When I take him to school, we have our own elaborate handshake. My daughter and I have one. It's not as elaborate, but we're working on it still. When basketball players do these elaborate handshakes, it's a sign of we're together. We're in. We're united. Christian fellowship is a celebratory communal handshake. It's we're in this together. We're, we're, the, uh, we're the family of Christ. This is our community. And Paul says they perceived the grace and extended the right hand of fellowship. Grace is enough. There is no, they perceived we were a homeschooling family and then they extended the right hand of fellowship. They perceived that we are really into essential oils and they extended the right hand of fellowship. Is this what we notice in Christians? Perceive the grace in one another. We are very quick to perceive all of our shortcomings. We're very quick to perceive our differences. We're very quick to perceive what could split us, what makes us different. We must learn to be grace detectors in one another. Now, what Paul is showing us is that Jesus brings Jews and Gentiles together. Jesus brings black men and women, Hispanic men and women, Asian, European together. Only Jesus can do that. No other living figure can accomplish such a task. And believe it or not, Jesus brings maskers and non-maskers together. Jesus brings vaxxers and anti-vaxxers together. He brings Americans and Syrians and refugees and the rich and the poor and the educated and the working mom and the the single man, the blue collar, the Uber driver, and even those that like their steak medium and well done. Because grace is, is what brings us together. We have fellowship in radical grace. 
because we've united on one fact, that God has made a way for humans to be born again through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And that sinks us together in Christ. And when I believe that Jesus alone is what saves, that Jesus alone is what makes us accepted before God, that nothing I do gets me further in or leveled up in his kingdom, then I can't think I'm better than any other Christian. And then I also can't think I'm any worse. See, I think oftentimes we don't struggle with thinking we're better than others. It might be we think we're worse than others. But that's a false gospel too. We have fellowship and unity in the risen Christ, welcoming one another, rejoicing in the grace that we perceive in one another. So let's be the kind of churches that reject any other standards of fellowship. No extra qualifiers, no other Jesus plus this, because the angels in heaven, as we were just saying about, the angels in heaven, they're not singing, worthy are the people who held on to the law. Worthy are the people who didn't drink wine. Worthy are the people who are Baptists or Reformed, who are a part of Acts 29. No, they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we say, amen. We point it all to the lamb, all to Christ who's forgiven our sins, who gives us new life, and who is alive for us now. So accept no alternatives. Become a grace detector. And if you're looking for a verse to put on Facebook today, maybe Galatians 2.3 will do it. Not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the reason why we can be forgiven. That it's not our works, it's not our trying hard, it's not are really trying to be impressive. It's not our attendance. It is nothing we do but receive your grace with the empty hands of faith. That you invite us into your life. You invite us to be co-heirs with you. You invite us to experience your love. So help us now, as the Apostle John wrote, help us to come to know and believe the love of God. We could answer the love of God on a quiz. We, we, could, we could check the right boxes. But Lord, we want to experience in our souls, in the deepest interiorities of our hearts, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are made new, and that we are yours. So serve us now, King Jesus. Wash our feet, wash our hearts, wash our minds without any spot or wrinkle that we may be presented before you, holy, that we'd see ourselves as holy, the called out ones of God, justified, redeemed, loved. Help us to perceive this grace now, Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.